Hello and welcome to the PR Week. Whoa, Steve, it's December 28th. Why don't you take the rest of the year off? I'll take it from here. Welcome to the PR Week Podcast. I'm Fitz, senior producer here at PR Week. Today, we'll be listening back to a few of our favorite conversations of 2023. How do you get to the C-suite? How do you get recognized? And you do it by helping to evolve the business strategy. And that's the really fun part of purpose. I think we've come to a point as a industry where we're like, okay, we should celebrate brand purpose work, but it should be the very best and stuff that's shifting now real world issues. There are certain things, the four things, sustainability, diversity and inclusion, wage levels and reskilling and geopolitics, you've got to stand up and speak up. Then there are other things you should just talk to your internal teams about. Gun control, education, voting rights, things like this. I don't think you have to be a public advocate on this. So instead of thinking about AI as the sort of amorphous blob that is going to do things to us, I find it much more helpful to think about it as a collection of tools that can help us do what we want faster uh, and more easily, and in some cases, more joyfully which is a good thing. The law is changing a lot of issues. And one thing is that all of us, whether it's Fleischmann Hilliard or anybody else in the business, we need to be on the right side of the law. And the law is different in many parts of the US. So each situation that arises has its own complexities. And looking at um, your supply chain, how you engage with your partners, your policies and approaches for your employees, you know, ingredient sourcing, all of the different elements of your business and whether or not you are a good corporate citizen. Steve Barrett, Frank Washkuch, and the entire PR Week team will be back with fresh content and conversations in 2024. Wow. How is it 2024 already? We begin with a chat Steve had on October 19th with Carol Cohn, CEO of Carol Cohn On Purpose. I always like to say that, you know, great ideas because, you know, PR Week and Decoded and all your awards, you know, how do you come up with a great idea that's authentic? And I would just like to say to any of your listeners that we all have our own superpowers. And my superpower is connection making. And so you have to play into your superpower, whatever you're doing at work. And I was having lunch with Aaron Horowitz from Sproutel, and and he was telling me about Jerry the Bear. It's another one of his inventions. He makes social robots for kids with disease. And he said, Carol, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we're just about to start work with Aflac. Then all of a sudden, Boom! Over my head, this thunderclap happened, and I saw a social robot and a duck collide in my brain. And I and he and he looked at me. He said, "What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you?" And I said, "We're gonna create a social robot duck for Aflac," and we did. It's a real light bulb moment. It was a great light bulb moment. But I think the other thing that's really important because that we spent once Dan approved it, um, you know, we spent a year studying children and their needs. This is the deep authenticity that any of your listeners in terms of their purpose work, you got to do your homework. Mm. You've got to find the nuggets. And one of the nuggets we found about children going through pediatric cancer is that they lose agency. They lose everything in their life. They're they're going to school, their routines, their food, their dogs, their cats, whatever. And this little duck- hospital kind of dominates. Oh, it totally dominates. So they go through a thousand days of treatments on average. And this duck gave them comfort and gave them a tiny sense of agency. And there was a piece of data we found that when you give a child some agency during pediatric cancer, they have a better outcome. Do you have one particular anecdote, you know, of a story of one particular kid that really resonated with you and the impact the duck had on their 
life? We, we do, but um, I think that there was a young lady that helped us develop the duck, and she was just incredible. She was 12 years old. She was older than some of the, the um, patients. And um, she loved him, and she was really, really supportive of him, and unfortunately, she passed away. Yeah. And that just broke all of our hearts yeah. to show that there needs to be, because a lot of the money that Aflac raises, and they raise a lot from their agents, their agents just love the connection to pediatric cancer. Um, it goes into research. Yeah. And the... So yeah, and Dan has kind of put, he's been a genuinely purposeful CEO for long since, long before it was trendy, if Absolutely. You like. And that's how he's kind of run the business, so... It was good. It was great to have him on the uh, as part of the show, and great to honor you as well. Um, we also got to find out who he thought would win in a fight: the Affleck duck or the <laughs> Geico gecko. I know, of course, really, right? The duck would, uh, right? But, but you know, the other thing that Dan does, and I think it's the long-term view that Affleck has, because right now they're they're working in terms of their public relations, in terms of closing the gap on medical debt. Because that is a huge, huge problem, and they're doing a lot of things. They have this, these awards called care grants, and I, I'm, I'm very honored to be a judge for that. And that they offer um, thousands of dollars to people who write in, and we have to judge a very sad situation of people that just, you know, when you, if you do not have insurance, and they're not trying to sell insurance, but they're trying to educate people about um, medical debt. Um, it, it can really, really just ruin a family. And so they do that. They also, um, they created a sickle cell duck. And so sickle cell is, um, it's when the blood cells don't get enough oxygen. And so they elevated, they evolved MSAD, my special Aflac duck, to sickle cell duck and has different sort of interaction in terms of medical play and things like that. So they constantly evolve, but they stick with their core. Yeah. And, and that's why they're so successful. Up next, let's heat things up a bit as we hop on a summer flight across the sea to Cannes, where Steve was on location with Joanne Robertson, CEO of Global Markets at Ketchum, who served as the Cannes Lions PR jury president this year, and Vicki Chowney, Global Head of Content and Publishing at Hill & Knowlton Strategies. Welcome both. Hi, Steve. Hi. So how's it feel? You're done, almost dusted. You've got to do the uh, event tonight, but that's all on you, We Joanne. do. We do, yeah. We're, we're bringing our style tonight, Steve. We're bringing our style. We're, uh, you know what? We're exhausted. It's been an incredible... This is day six, I think, that since we arrived in Cannes. And we had three very long days in the judges' room. Uh, I didn't want to mention in front of the other juries, but I managed to get a room with a window this year. So uh, at least we were in natural light. Classic windowless room. Now, the we, we, were, we were elevated. The PR category is becoming that important. We were elevated to a room with a window. Um, but you know what? It is such a privilege to sit in that room with the other nine jurors uh, because the quality of the discussion the open-mindedness to hear other points of view, other cultural references. You know, there was such an inclusive atmosphere. I think it helped us get to the best work. I feel so energised. I really do. I agree with Joe. It's been a lot and it's been intense, but we really were able to celebrate work that had a return to earned at its core. And I think that is such a positive message for our industry. And I'm so excited 
to take that back and really start messaging that and making sure that we feel proud of what we can do. Joanne, you were a juror last year, chair of jury this year. What was the difference and what are the big themes of this year, especially you know compared to, to last year's? Sure. What? I think we, we spent a lot of time together virtually on WhatsApp before we got here. And we agreed some criteria that we were going to hold each other accountable for. So we were absolutely focused on earned at the core. Uh, We wanted to find work that was living deep in culture, whether that was local culture or a global phenomenon, whatever it was. And we wanted things that had real impact. Now, that could be commercial impact, which we prayed for, uh, societal impact, which would have been incredible. And if we could have got both, then that would have been the dream. But we talked a lot about what we meant by those three things so that we came into it with a real focus and we were all on the same page. I'd say the three big themes that came out for us that we talked about on the final day, the first was to say to big brands in particular that purpose alone is not enough. There were some very beautiful purpose campaigns that we saw, but when we put them through the filter, particularly of that last criteria of what have the, what's the impact been, many, many of them fell down. So I would say it's so easy to want to rush to enter your creative work, But when you're committing to a cause, long-term societal change, maybe just wait a little bit. Wait until you see more than just interest in the creative idea to actually see people's opinions and behaviours shift. So that was the first one. The second was... Just on that, mm. Can has kind of been criticised in the past for having far too much purposeful work, which, to your point, doesn't necessarily create an impact. Was there some sort of central edict that went out this year? Because I've heard it across a few other categories as well. No, look, I think... We're all human, so I think we've... I personally would say I've reacted to the discussion after Cannes each year, and I'd say I fell into the trap that I think a lot of jurors and juries fall into this time last year, where I fell in love with a piece of work because of the cause, right? Because I truly believe that the cause is something that should fundamentally we should be shifting. But I look back on that now and I think if I'd had the criteria we had this year, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd have had a moment of a filter where I've said, it's not changing anything. So I think we've just, there was no central edict there. In fact, I was surprised at how can just let us run with it as presidents and as juries. Um, but I think we've come to a point as a industry where we're like, okay, we should celebrate brand purpose work, but it should be the very best and stuff that's shifting no real world issues. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that it's also reflective of a maturity of our understanding of what brand purpose is and should be. We're asking better questions and we're more aware of people and brands trying to use that to get you know, more attention in award shows like this. So it's just that, for me, it's an organic evolution of, of what that means and how it should be used. Yeah, and sorry, Joanne, I interrupted no, not at you. All. Uh, our second theme was all around uh, simplicity is beautiful. You know, we really felt that some of the campaigns were built off just really simple human insights. They really, you could tell the teams really understood what was happening culturally in the moment, either in their market or in their industry. And you could see that they really layered the campaign, but through a simple creative piece at the beginning, there's not enough of that. And then the the final one that we really focused on, which actually I'm going to let Vicky talk about because she added this one, but this is about content. <laughs> yeah. So um, content 
you know, it is very present in a lot of our award winners. But I think we were very mindful of the fact that content is PR when it's specifically designed to create a conversation, a new conversation, revisit an old conversation that had that needs more discussion, um, but really get people talking about it. And when you look at particularly our top performers, they did that so well. Um, and some of them didn't use content at all. So it's almost this this kind of new uh, evaluation of what content is and should be within a PR context. But we were really kind of strict on the fact that it needed to be earned in its nature. Yeah, I like this summer feel. I like the temperatures here. So we're going to stay in the summer for a little while longer. That's when Fleischman Hillard CEO John Saunders made his first appearance on the PR Week podcast back on June 8th after eight years in charge at the Omnicom Group Agency. Here's a bit of his chat with Steve. Now, another thing you said in the agency report was that uh, the focus, one of the big focuses for 23 would be ESG. And clearly that's top of mind with everybody at the moment. Um, there's a backlash against what, what some call woke capitalism, a horrible phrase and slightly meaningless, but, you know, it's out there, it's in the public domain and people are calling it that. What's your perspective on that and how are you helping companies navigate this? We're going to talk about one of those companies um, when we come to the, the discussion around pride because that's, you know, been a very different pride month for, for corporations this year as, as compared to last year because of that backlash. What is, what's your perspective on everything that's been going on in that space? I would say two things. Um, we as a firm are trying to be as consistent as we possibly can ourselves for internally for, um, for ourselves and what, what we stand for. Um, but we also have to be very mindful that we represent a whole a panoply of clients uh, whose cultures range from what might be termed by American terms liberal right across to being ultra conservative. And so the advice is always nuanced. It's always to be respectful of, of audiences. But right now it is very complex and, the compl- and it's made more complex by the fact that here in America, at least, the law is changing. The law is changing a lot of issues. And one thing is that um, all of us, whether it's Fleischmann Hillary or anybody else in the business, we need to be on the right side of the law. And the law is different in many parts of, of uh, the U.S. So each situation um, that arises has its own complexities. And it's... Uh, difficult giving advice and I I don't envy those firms that find themselves in in the crosshairs but what we can say is that it behoves all of us whether it's you know my firm Fleischmann Hillard or the people we represent is that we try and be as consistent as we can at all times Um, and that we all as organizations are vulnerable if Office X or Outlet Y or Store Z behaves in a way that's contrary to those values. So it's not easy. Yeah, and do you feel that there's almost like there's a there's a five percent of the loudest people at, at either end of an agenda that tend to be dominating a lot of these discussions when actually you hope that somewhere there's a there's a mid ground where people can maybe agree to disagree and have a, a sort of civilized conversation about things. But 
What seems to be happening is all of these issues get hijacked by a very noisy minority, and that is amplified by by media that that tend to you know that, that get clicks and eyeballs out of this. Well, I I I, I agree with that absolutely a hundred percent. I mean, you know, in in the time that I've spent in in this business, I'm I'm fascinated by the extent to which the tools we have for communicating with each other have evolved to an extent that one could never have imagined. Yet our ability to actually communicate with one another, our ability to listen, our ability to take on messages rather than everybody roaring at each other um, is probably less sophisticated than it was 40 years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that's behind this whole... Um, Gen Z trend of uh, going back to Y2K and dropping the smartphones for a flip phone and getting off social media. Maybe they've got it right. So uh, you make a fair point. You've got a unique perspective on the whole global industry. Started out in Ireland, building a business, taking on a big role in in uh, London, in the UK, and then coming and doing the global role from St. Louis and all around the world. What What's your take on the industry at the moment and where it's at? Because We've all we've all been talking about how it's much more respected than it used to be. It's it's in demand at the C-suite level, CEO level. Uh, are you broadly? I mean, I know you're going to say yes to this, but are we at a place where we've never been before in terms of the the, the industry and 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 the way it's pushing forward? Yeah, I am um, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's unrecognizable from from the business that I entered from journalism all, all those years ago. And I, I'm personally uh, rather less consumed by uh, some of the issues that sometimes trouble us as an industry, whether, for example, we call ourselves communications or we call ourselves PR. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be regarded as a PR guy um, I'm very, I'm very comfortable with that. It's a very sizable industry uh, with tens of thousands of people gainfully employed, doing amazing work uh, for our clients. And I have a very deep sense that we are much more valued by clients than we um, have ever been. So I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty chilled about some of these existential questions. I mean. I think there are issues that we get rightly criticised about around, say, DEI. Although I think there's a uh, a lot of progress has and is being made. But for example, given the time of the year that's in it, I, I think that our industry for a long time has been at the forefront of the whole pride conversation, and I think that that's something that uh, the industry should be proud of. It wasn't always the case, but probably has been for 10 or 15 years. And I think these are really positive moves. On our next featured chat, we find out what it means to be a B Corp. Gemma Hart, Danone's VP of Communications and Community Affairs, explains the harder than it looks process and much more on this episode that first aired March 2nd. Now, of course, for a long time, Danone was the largest B Corps in the world. It's now the second largest. Tell us what that means. I mean, that's it, it's not an easy honor or well, it's not an award, but I don't know how you describe it. Right. It's not an easy thing to get, is it? And you have to keep up to it to keep that um, 
attribution. So right. tell us about that and tell us what being a B Corps is all about. And it's obviously around purpose and what have you. But I think mm. our listeners would really appreciate hearing from the, you know, the second largest B Corps in the world. Right. So if I just step back, Danone is really an unusual food and beverage company for the scale that we're at because we have purpose at the core of our being. And um, it's really in our heritage as a company. And so 50 years ago, our then CEO did what was a groundbreaking speech that where he said, our responsibility does not stop at the factory gate. And that is um, something that, that is then intrinsic to who we are as a company in terms of our culture and values. And what is now talked about very widely as stakeholder capitalism is something that we've been practicing for a very long time. So then that translates into our governance structure. Um, and so at the global level, we are something that's called an entreprise à mission, which is a French version of a public benefit corporation. We are a public benefit corporation um, and we are also a B Corp. And we became a B Corp um, in 2018. And at the time, um, I think doubled the size of the B Corp world globally overnight because a lot of B Corps were much smaller. So the B Corp accreditation, I think, is something that we see as it's a it's very important, right? It's a third party accreditation that is sort of a stamp of approval around us using our business as a force for good. So what I would say is the practices that underpin it are things that we have been doing for a long time. So it was a very natural step for us to, to become a B Corp. And when we decided to apply to be a B Corp, um, Danon, right, so the yogurt part of our business, had merged with White Wave, which broadly is the plant-based side of our business. And we had smaller parts of the business that were already B Corp accredited. And so it was something that actually really came from our own employees, where it was a shared focus within the new culture of the combined business. And so we actually didn't expect to get the accreditation the first time. You go through a very rigorous process where B Lab, to the external body is looking at your business practices. They're looking at um, your supply chain, how you engage with your partners, your policies and approaches for your employees, you know, ingredient sourcing, all of the different elements of your business and whether or not you are a good corporate citizen. And they have measurements for each. And actually what I think was interesting for us and for them during that process was that they had never worked with a business of our scale. So they were actually having to adapt some of the processes so they made sense for a business so of our scale. So they were learning as well. They were learning as yeah. well, which I think has helped them as they've moved and um, more multinational companies have engaged on the B Corp journey. Um, we globally now have the target to become um, B Corp accredited around the world for Denon by 2025. And we're already about three quarters of the way there. So, so the way it works is that each legal entity around the world have, has to be accredited individually and then it kind of ladders up to the global yeah, entity. Yeah, I remember Havas started in London and then New York got accreditation. Yeah. So that's why you can have a business like Unilever, right, which is also um, a great proponent of stakeholder capitalism, but they're not a B Corp, but Ben & Jerry's is, uh, yeah, for example. Yeah, exactly. So you have to recertify every three years, you have to improve every three years. So it's a constant dialogue with B-Lab to understand where the standards are going and to make sure that we not only keep up, but get ahead of them. So as a communicator, you know, you've been at AB InBev, you've been on the agency side. What's the difference communicating at a B Corp? And what, 
how do you have to communicate differently at a B Corps or is it or are the principles pretty much the same? I think that the purpose-led nature of our business, the, the fact that we have this thing called the dual project, which is the balance of performance and purpose, gives us something a little unique and differentiated in how we tell our stories. And so, and also how we engage as a business, frankly, because it gives us a, a level of um, credibility and authenticity in some of the things that we do that then we can storytell around. Um, so, for example, um, the White House back in September last year had um, a conference on nutrition and access to nutrition and healthy food. It was their first conference in 50 years. And because of the nature of our company and also our portfolio, so 70% of our portfolio is nutrition forward, we were invited to participate. And what that meant was not just being involved on a panel, but also to bring forward a commitment. And so we committed over the next seven years, so between now and 2030, that we are investing $22 million across the business to help drive better nutrition among American consumers. And when you look at how we can scale that for a business like ours, it's $22 million, potentially reaching 300 million consumers over the seven years. And that takes different forms, right? It's the research that we can do to help um, drive sustainable food systems. It's the work we can do with healthcare providers to give them more information on healthy eating and probiotics. But then that, of course, that gives us a moment to talk about it at a high level when we make the announcement. And it also gives us a way to take the different pieces of that commitment and storytell around that too, which is what we're doing. Back in May, PR Week recorded our first ever live podcast in front of an audience at the 2023 PR Week Healthcare Conference in New York City. Steve Barrett was joined on stage by two industry heavyweights, Sally Sussman, EVP and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer, and Edelman CEO Richard Edelman. Are business leaders up for this extended role of, you know, purpose? And purposeful business is good business, we know that. But uh, it is challenging for them, isn't it? Do you, do you think they're going to shrink back a bit with, 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 with some of the attacks that they're getting? Well, um, Fortune had a little study um, last week that said that um, nearly half of CEOs are now um, wondering how aggressive to be about uh, ESG. And that is bad thinking. It's bad thinking, particularly, I've also now heard from certain investors that you know, maybe we should break the pieces, you know, that the thing we should focus on is sustainability because we can measure that better than, than uh, diversity and inclusion. That's, again, wrong thinking because remember who works at your company and how you do better making a more diverse workforce and make sure that your supply chain is diverse. So it, it is political silly season. There will be a tendency of comms directors, not Sally, um, if they should read her book, um, to say, let's be cautious here. Let's, let's, let's keep it low. There are certain things, the four things, sustainability, diversity and inclusion, wage levels and reskilling, and geopolitics, you've got to stand up and speak up. Then there are other things you should just talk to your internal teams about. Gun control, education, voting rights, things like this. I don't think you have to be a public advocate on those. I agree completely. Uh, Richard's giving us great counsel. 
this whole woke, anti-woke thing is politics. And organizations, companies, agencies need to express from their values. That's why we support the FDA, because it's a part of our value set. And segregate, I think it's important in your mind to segregate what's politics, which you shouldn't engage in, and what is values, which you must engage in. A lot of this debate is happening in a, a world, it's not the old media world, is it? There are influencers with vast audiences, thousands of them, and you're, going, you're having to message in a very different environment. So talk a little bit about how that's changed what you do. You know, obviously there are still media players out there, um, what you might call traditional media, but some would, could say that that's almost been bypassed. It's, certainly for a, a, a younger generation and, and people with certain views. So how does that change the way um, you, you communicate uh, from a, you know, a brand and corporate point of view? For me, um, I've tried to recruit very specifically for this skill, which means I'm hiring younger people, um, people who are more at home and native to these technologies. But I also think that we should feel free to experiment, even in a highly regulated company like Pfizer. We were on Twitter, then we came off Twitter, and now I'm thinking we're gonna go back onto Twitter. These are not decisions that have to be in perpetuity. You can experiment, Twitter, TikTok, figure it out, learn, bring in talent, and continue to evolve your programs. Steve, I, I would just say DeSantis's announcement today uh, for president on Twitter uh, is a pretty important moment in media. And he's trying to establish himself as a force on the right. Hopefully Twitter will balance at some point to the left as well. Um, but influencers matter massively in health. And the idea somehow that, again, it's the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal solo. Nope, it isn't. And, you know, it's not JAMA or West. It, it, it's, it's all. And we have to give serious consideration to the facts that are presented and counter counterfactual quickly. I want to finish on, I think, if everybody's inbox is just full of uh, emails with AI in the, in the subject line, it's just, it's ubiquitous, and we're not going to solve that in the next five minutes. Um, but I did want to just touch on it, because it is going to have fundamental changes to everything. Um, but also, you've got to cut through a lot of the, the hype and, and, the, and the doom and gloom as well. So, Sally, from, from Pfizer's point of view, from, and, and from a communications point of view, how do you see it uh, impacting the business? We are uh, learning about generative AI. We are using it um, in advancements on things like clinical trials, um, in the way in which we understand human behavior and the way in which medical information is shared. Um, I'm trying myself to think, how can this tool help me? Are there things it can do that will save time, money, resource from my team? And where are the things that it cannot do? Or, or where do I want to continue to stake a claim for original content generated by my team? It's a big learning moment for all of us. And I think we need to proceed not in fear, but in you know, open minds to how can it help us. Richard, you were in Davos earlier in the year. Everybody was talking about it. Every CEO was talking about it. Were they talking about it from, oh, we can save some money here. We can get rid of some people. Or were they seeing a potential 
you know, upside in terms of creativity and doing things better and, and improving business. They definitely were making the argument for productivity, you're correct. Um, but also the upskilling of the teams that, um, you know, mundane wrote, it's, it's, it's the spreadsheet theory that, you know, you don't have to go and do the HP-12C as I did in business school. That's the positive side. But the negative side, which I must warn you all of, is the reality of bad facts yield um, bad outcomes. And we have to make sure that um, we populate good facts into make context for the machines that are spitting out these kinds of products. Because without that, we're going to really affect the election. We're going to, we're going to affect um, you know, shareholder votes. We're going to affect so much. So I think our job in making sure AI produces a positive result could not be more important. Next up, a new member of the PR Week Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Frank. Frank Shaw, CCO at Microsoft. He was inducted at the beginning of this month at our Hall of Fame event in New York City, and we had a chance to speak with him back in May where we discussed all things AI. You can't really turn around in the last six months without hearing AI. I mean, bombardment of stories, coverage. It's going to change the world. It's going to change every industry. It's as important as electricity and the wheel. And um, it's certainly got everyone talking. And you, you obviously, at Microsoft and with OpenAI, you've, you've been leading on this. So why don't you set the scene? What are the possibilities for AI and how is it going to change the world? Yeah, well, I think it is. It's super exciting. I mean, we're in the middle of like a really big technology platform shift uh, driven uh, in this case by AI and specifically by some of the large language models that are now uh, being used. And I don't think I will go as big as like electricity or uh, fire <laughs> or anything like that. But I mean, it's as big a platform shift as we've seen, you know, in the past you know 30 years. The one that um, the one that I think about really is that first jump uh, to the internet uh, back in the early 1990s when mm -hmm. Mosaic came on and there was a browser that people could now actually go and uh, go to different websites and different uh, see different images and get access to information in a way that was available before, but only if you were super technical. And you know, I remember living through that time and, and, and seeing this and getting super excited about it from both from a business standpoint and what was gonna happen and also from a communication standpoint, because you could even see early on how you could reach people differently uh, using this new technology. And I ran around trying to convince clients and the wood products industry um, at the time. Saying, Were you at Wagner Edstrom back then? No, I was at a small agency in Portland. Okay. And I was telling clients, you know, you need to register your domain name so that mm -hmm. you could be found on the World Wide Web. And this was before, uh, you know, these things were big and I, I did not have much success to be honest uh <laughs> convincing them to register a domain name but it was uh you know it changed the way we communicate it, it allowed us to, to reach people differently it changed the news media and of course it changed business um and that's what it feels like right now as uh, we look at uh, ai uh the technologies that are out there let people do things that they couldn't do before in really interesting ways. And as you look at it, you can see how it will change the way we communicate, how we will change the way we work. And, you know, that's just super exciting. 
and you know, we've got a lot of products in the market to uh, uh, help that happen. Yeah, it feels, I don't know if I'm right in, in this analogy, but it feels a bit like the dot-com boom. And actually, a lot of the real products only really happened after the bust, didn't they? When when search, you know, Google really got its act together, Facebook came along, uh, there was high-speed internet, you know, broadband, which there wasn't before. And it was almost like, it, it almost feels like we're in that period now where everyone's super excited about it, but nobody's yet necessarily worked out how to use it best and how it's going to change what they do. Is that a fair, fair analogy? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not sure I would use the dot-com boom and bust necessarily, but it's, it's a good analogy. I do think that it's like, this is why I think when the browser first came into existence, you know, businesses didn't quite know what they were going to do with it. The concept of e-commerce wasn't there. Uh, building an audience, if you were a, a journalist, uh, you know, really wasn't there. But you could start to see what those possibilities were like. And so that that move to the web um, and then, you know, the big browser race between Microsoft and, and Netscapes, more and more people piled on and then businesses piled on. Everybody had to build their own website. Um, and then what happened after that is that as the infrastructure built out, there was euphoria um, and, you know, a lot of probably plausibly bad ideas that mm. got funded and then didn't work out. But it left us with all sorts of interesting learnings. And, you know, we built uh, as an industry from there. And, and you know, there's not a company in the world that would start up today and not think, gosh, I have to have a web presence. Um, That's right. And, yeah. uh, a mobile app if I'm talking to uh, broad consumers. And I think in the future, you know, people will start thinking about, Having AI technologies built into the products and services they offer and the way they work will be just as common. If you had to explain in a sentence or two what AI is and what it's changing, how would you do that? Ooh, in a sentence. Uh, I would say that uh, the new AI has the ability to look at and interact with massive amounts of information and do a better job of synthesizing and simplifying it and answering questions uh, than the previous models have had. We close out this special 2023 year in review episode with a bit of Steve's chat with legendary business journalist and author Alan Murray, who we had on the podcast at the beginning of the year. February 9th. A couple of quotes that struck me from your book, one's from Satya Nadella from Microsoft. Profit needn't be separated from purpose. It's a false choice. So which principles will shape capitalism 2.0? And then Jamie Dimon, companies can only prosper if they invest in their employees, serve their customers, support their communities, and um, respect their responsibility to help lift up all of society rather than ignore or drive by those who've been left behind really noble sentiments but and and there is a chapter toward the end of your book where you address the skeptics because this is not by any means universally agreed with is it there are a lot of skeptics out there it's regarded as there's a very vocal especially at the moment group who subscribe to the philosophy that it's woke capitalism business shouldn't get involved in this what do you say to those people because that's a very strong uh, driver, isn't it, of opinion, especially in the United States. 
There's no question that many of my colleagues in the press have have been critical of this. You know, from the left, they say, oh, it's just a bunch of PR to get to to the (laughs) subject of your podcast. Either it's just a bunch of PR, it's just a bunch of people trying to, you know, uh, value signaling, uh, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Yeah. And then on the other side, from the conservative side, it's like this is a distraction. They're just playing footsie with Elizabeth Warren. It's woke capitalism. They just need to focus on making a profit. The interesting thing is none of those criticisms come from the people who actually run big companies. I mean, I I had this I I ran into uh, Ed Bastian, who was the CEO of Delta shortly after the book came out. And he said, what kind of reaction is the book getting. And I said, well, you know, it surprises me how much pushback there is from journalists and from politicians. And he said, he said, without missing a beat, he said, yeah, well, none of them run large corporations. So the people who are actually in the game and who are dealing with the pressures from their employees every day and dealing with the pressures from society and social media is a big part of this. The people who are actually in the game get this and understand it and believe it. It tends to be the politicians and the journalists and the people on the outside who are uh, the critics. What do you think has been achieved? If we think about the development of, since that conference, there was the, the Business Roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, which, you know, again, a lot of people were skeptical about that, but it was a fundamental yeah. change from something that was in 2019. Correct. But then we see companies like this week, BP, scaling back its plans to curb oil output and others, you know, recording record profits, energy companies and not uh, people say, well, why aren't they addressing climate here? They're making more money than ever. You know, to me, there are a couple of things. One is no one ever said this was about not making profits. This was about recognizing your responsibility, your fiduciary responsibility to shareholders The truth is, and any business leader would agree with this, there are really a lot of different ways you can get there. Uh, There are a lot of different things you can do and still stay with a straight face. You're you're responding to your shareholders. Within that operating space, how do you move towards having a better impact on society? That's, That's what this whole conversation is about. I think climate is where you have the clearest demonstration that something big is going on. Um, You know, since 2019, the increase in Fortune 500 companies that have made net zero commitments by 2050 or sooner, it's about a 300% increase. So it, it, it really has exploded since then. And then, you know, people will say, well, wait, 2050 is a long way off. This CEO is going to be dead by then. Why why does a commitment in 2050 mean anything? But then you see big companies doing real stuff. And I'll give you just two huge examples. One is Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, who in January of, of last year, no, January of 21, I guess it was, yeah. said, we are only going to make electric vehicles by 2035. Uh, Now, that's a goal that they have to start working on instantly. They did start working on instantly because you've got to retool all your factories. Those are long-term investments. It has transformed that company. Uh, And it wasn't obvious. It was not. You certainly couldn't justify it by the number of electric vehicles that were being sold in 2021 because there weren't that many. 
and it wasn't required by regulation. In fact, Mary Barra was a year and a half ahead of California. And previously in the automobile business, California was always the lead. California would put a regulation in place with cafe standards and the auto industry would follow suit. So that's a great example of a CEO making a commitment because she felt it was the right thing to do and felt it would be right for the business in the long run. I mean, you'd seen Tesla, you know, soar in the stock markets. Uh, and she is not what anyone would consider a woke CEO. Better example is Walmart. You know, you have a CEO. Uh, I mean, nobody thinks of Walmart as a woke company or of uh, Doug McMillan as a woke CEO, especially in New York, especially in New York. Yeah. Exactly. They don't want him any, anywhere near here. It's a red state. It's a red state company. But but McMillan uh, said, I think it was about a year ago, he said, I want Walmart to be the ultimate regenerative company and 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 what that means is to give back to people and planet not take away uh and one of the things he did which is pretty extraordinary is he went out to his suppliers and said we want to enlist all of you in the effort to reduce emissions and 4000 suppliers participate you know, if you're a Walmart supplier and Walmart asks you something like that, you pay attention. You right? jump. Yeah. Yeah. Four thousand suppliers are participating in this project Gigaton, which is designed to remove a gigaton of carbon emissions from the environment. I'll give you one one third example that just is indicative of the momentum that is picking up in this area. Uh, Soren Sku, who is the CEO of Moller Maersk, the big shipping company. Shipping company. Yeah. Yeah, they made a massive investment in the North Sea in wind, in wind power to f to power a hydrogen fuel plant to power their ships. Now, I can tell you there is no way that investment can be justified on current economics. It cannot. So I said to him, and it was a very expensive investment. So I said, I said, Soren, why are you doing this? And he said, well, I'm doing it because literally twice a week, I get a phone call from my one of my customers who says, hey, I just made this net zero commitment. Uh, and the only way I can get there is if you get all the carbon emissions out of your shipping because all my stuff runs on your ships. So you got to do this so I can make my target. So you're starting to see that sort of thing take hold. And it's really, I think it's really transformative. It's not perfect. It doesn't solve the problem. The BP example is really interesting. Uh, I spoke to the CEO of BP this morning. In fact, he was in New York. Look, what BP said was two things. One is, given what happened in Ukraine, yes, they want to be part of the energy transition, but they also have to make sure that the world has a reliable and affordable source of energy. And what happened in Russia and the Ukraine created the risk of sharply spiking oil prices, which would cause all kinds of social damage. And so they upped their investment in oil. But at the same time, they upped their investment in alternatives. So they're the only oil company of all the oil companies that's actually investing as much in alternatives as they are investing in oil and gas. So it, it's not a perfect solution. You know, companies can't solve all our problems. They still have to make profits for their shareholders. The push for profits is sometimes going to lead them into places that are not good for society. But it is a completely different attitude towards running a business than existed 10 years ago.
Just a small sampling of some of the amazing conversations that we've had all throughout 2023. If you'd like to hear the full versions of the podcast clips featured here, visit us at PRweek.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We wish you and your family a healthy and prosperous new year. But as Steve says, that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next year on the PR Week. Yeah, that was cheesy, but it's the end of the year. Sometimes you need a little cheese. Later.